Hi, welcome to Thinking Ahead, the mental health tech podcast from IESO. I'm Tom Clarford. Today, we've got a great panel discussion for you. The panel will be discussing two huge questions. Does therapy work? And if so, how do we know it works? We're going to take a look at the current state of psychotherapy and some research one of my guests has published, which gives us a huge insight into which bits of therapy are most impactful. Joining me to discuss all this, we've got Dr. Jennifer Gentile, SVP of US Research and Clinical Innovation at IESO, and a practicing clinician in the US. We've got Dr. Anna Caterino, Director of Clinical Science at IESO, and we've got Dr. Michael Eubank, Senior Clinical Scientist at IESO. Welcome to you all. Jennifer, I wonder if you could start us off by giving us some uh, definitions. What do we mean when we say psychotherapy? Psychotherapy is a treatment or intervention for people with mental health conditions. It involves an interaction between a patient and a person with training in mental health, such as psychologist or psychiatrist, mental health therapist. And the goal is to improve their mental health. Brilliant. And um, when we say improved, like how how do we know we've improved someone? (laughs) Great question. So, So how is a patient better? Yeah. How do we know when they're better? Excellent question. So uh, a gold standard of knowing a patient is better would be through objective measurements. In addition to subjective measurements, a patient reports they're better, uh, uh, a clinician reports they're better. But ideally, it's a combination of the two. Uh, Ideally, you have routine outcome metrics, meaning um, that you have frequent, regular intervals that you test uh, using objective measures that have been normed on thousands of people to understand if they are measurably improved. So if you think about a person with diabetes, for example, if you want to know if they are measurably improved, you don't ask them, are you better? You say, how are things going? So you, you get the subjective information. And as well, you measure an A1C level. So it's an incorporation of both objective and subjective techniques. Uh, and particularly with a mental health condition, if you think about depression, for example, when you ask a person if they're better, so with depression, your, uh, the way you think, the way you interpret and perceive information is a little bit distorted. For example, people with depression may think they're, uh, they're going to have bad luck forever. They're always in situations where things don't go their way. So when you ask them if they're better, they might accept that status quo of things are just never going to be good for me. This is just kind of the way it is. So maybe they're better in some parts of their depression, such as their energy is better, but maybe their sleep isn't better or their quote unquote luck or the way they're interpreting situations isn't better. So having um, an objective measurement can be helpful. And uh, there are ways, there are, are standardized assessments that exist And in a couple of settings around the world, this occurs, for example, in the UK. But uh, in most healthcare systems, we don't have standardized uh, metrics to measure our people objectively better, their objective improvement. It's more of a, eh, I feel better. Oh, the therapist says they seem better. They seem like their mood is better. And that's just one piece of all the data points that really can be gathered and understanding if a person is better. Thank you. So I'm from the UK. We, we work in the UK um, and I kind of assume that most places would use these sort of more more objective measurements. But you're saying actually that's not the norm and the, the norm is this more sort of just, just the subjective information. 
It, it is. And I, it's not to say that we're not, as mental health clinicians, we're all trained on how to use assessment tools, uh, how to do something called a, a patient health questionnaire that has nine questions, a PHQ-9. It's something that um, all mental health clinicians can deliver. But the reality of implementing them in every single visit or at regular intervals just doesn't happen. And whether in um, in the U.S., for example, it's not necessarily incentivized or it's not required, doesn't fit within the workflow or you're not necessarily um, paid additional money or you might not have time for it. But in a setting like the U.K., it's required. So it's, it becomes part of the patient's care. And uh, when we're taught as therapists, we're, we're taught how to do the assessments, but we're not necessarily taught about how to work with patients to interpret that information and to use it of value. Um, it's, it's thought of kind of like ticking a box if I did an assessment, but rather um, doing that measurement-based care, you actually can use it in therapy and it, and it helps to motivate the patients to see, oh, my sleep is better. My appetite is still the same. Uh, I might have a little bit of improvement on my energy, that type of thing. Um, and it can help them motivate the patient. And frankly, it helps motivate the therapist. So motivating to see the patient's scores go down. It's it's exciting versus sometimes in therapy, you feel like you're slogging along and, and it's hard to identify if things are or how things are getting better. Thank you. I wonder if you could also give us an idea of how how many people recover? Like what percentage of people who, who enter care actually get better? I, I wish I could give you good news on how many people get better. When you... When you go to an appointment, your likelihood of getting better is about the toss of a coin. So you have a 50% chance of, of having um, reliable recovery or no longer meeting criteria for a mental health diagnosis, which is not, it's not okay. Why are we accepting this is okay, right? If I went to the doctor with a broken leg and I said, what are my chances of getting better? And the doctor says, eh, maybe yes, maybe no, we're not exactly sure. Um, so unfortunately, the recovery rates are just not there. And there are kind of a host of other challenges with therapy. There are high dropout rates in therapy. Uh, we don't have a, a really accurate way to predict how long the treatment will be. We're not exactly sure of the mechanism of action. At least most folks aren't sure of the mechanism of action. We, need, we just need to know more. We need, um, need insight-driven mental health care rather than kind of thinking about each patient in isolation. Jennifer, you were just talking about mechanism of action. Could you just explain a bit more of what that is? When we think about mechanism of action, what, what I'm saying that is what is happening that's making a change happen? So if I think about a chemotherapy drug, what is a specific substance or substrate in that chemotherapy drug? What chemical that's making those cancer cells decrease? So in mental health treatment, if the intervention is talking, what, what language or... Um, speech is, is occurring that makes the change in that patient occur. That's a fascinating idea. I think we can talk a bit more with Michael about um, the research he's done in this area later on. Um, for now, I just wanted to sort of um, get an idea about variance in therapy. Anna, is there, is there much variance between the recovery rates different therapists achieve? Yes, absolutely. And there are many factors in therapy that impact the recovery rate that a patient may achieve. Therapist is just one of them. And the language that the therapist is using, which I think is an important element of what we're here to discuss today, is something that has been largely an unknown um, in, in the history of psychotherapy. So, 
you know, historically, therapists and patients meet in a room and uh, they have a conversation and there's usually no record um, of this conversation for the large part. Some sessions are recorded, of course, and there's quality control. But, you know, 99% of sessions or more are not recorded. So I think there is a lot to explore there about what is happening in session, what is being said, and how does that influence the patient's chances of responding to treatment or not. We deal primarily in a type of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT. And um, sometimes people describe that as evidence-based. Anna, could you tell me a bit what people mean when they say that? Sure. Um, When a type of therapy is evidence-based, it means that it got um, developed theoretically and tested in in a very specific way in something that we call clinical trials. So this means that these theories uh, for CBT, particularly, for example, as an example, there are other types of therapy that are evidence-based. But for, for any clinical trial, what happens is that a model of therapy is developed and then it is tested in very rigorous controlled conditions in the lab. So this means that Patients would have uh, a therapy session or a CBT session with a therapist. That session would be recorded. Therapists follow very exact and precise instructions on how to deliver that therapy. And the study is carried out for about, you know, a few hundred patients, for example. And then we see how patients respond under these very rigorous controlled conditions. This is called what we call um, the efficacy of of a trial, or in this case, the efficacy of CBT. Two very different things is the efficacy of how a certain type of therapy performs in controlled rigorous conditions and effectiveness, which means how a therapy performs in the real world. So in other words, when we take this type of therapy outside of the lab and into the real world for patients who attend uh, outpatient clinics and so on, what are the patient outcomes that we see? And sometimes these are two different things, efficacy and effectiveness. But what this means, uh, coming back to your question on why it's an evidence-based therapy, it means that it was tested under rigorous and controlled conditions in a clinical trial in the lab before being deployed in the real world. There's a difference then between how how these therapies perform in, in the trials and out in out in the wild. It's it's not better in the wild, is it? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> uh, so so what generally happens is that any experiment, any clinical trial that is done under these controlled conditions, usually the results are better because people um, are trained in the procedures very very carefully and they follow the procedures very carefully. And it's not that therapists in the real world are not trained in these procedures. They are as well. But um, it is different in the real world, uh, in everyday clinical practice. Um, There's something called therapist drift. Uh, So therapists tend to drift away from their training and start not following the the therapy protocols as carefully um, as they were perhaps uh, uh, at the start uh, when they were just training. So there are several factors that affect how these therapies perform um, 
outside of controlled conditions. So unfortunately, in the real world, there's we always see a decrease in how uh, patients respond to therapy. So I, I guess there's room for improvement then in terms of these evidence-based therapies at the very least, where you can say, well, there's clearly a gap between how well we know they can perform from the clinical trials and how well they're performing in, in the real world. Um, Michael, I guess we need, we need data. So we have every, every session that takes place, we have, it's a typed therapy session. So it means we have a conversation, a typed conversation between the therapist and the patient. And we have, I think at the moment, somewhere around 40, uh, 450,000 hours of therapeutic conversations. So that's um, kind of a, an awful lot of data and too much data really for anyone to be able to sit and look at and to work out what happens and what works. The advantage is, of course, this data is, if you can make sense of this data, you can get insights into what works in the real world. So what treatment affects patients in the real world, in a real clinical condition. And you can use that data or use those insights, hopefully then to improve uh, the treatment that you give to people. Well, can I add to that? Every interaction is correlated with a particular demographic profile. It's correlated with outcome metrics. Because um, I think that's the only way that you can kind of t- marry those two together to, to really understand what's what's making people better. Yeah. So alongside all the therapy session transcripts, we also have a record of all the messages that were sent between the therapist and the patient. Um, all the homework tasks that were performed by the patient, that kind of thing. So as well as all the measures that we get from a patient at the start of treatment, the measures that we take at the end of treatment, we also have a a comprehensive record of everything that happened in between. That's a huge data set. So, so what kind of thing can you do with it? So what you could do if you had enough time in the world, you could sit down and you could read through 450,000 transcripts and you can make notes and say these were good things, these were bad things. Um, we haven't got the time or nobody really has the time and the resources to do that. But what you can do is this where you can use um, computer models to read through the transcripts for you. And and we can do that with now new developments in artificial intelligence, deep learning models. We can train a model to recognize what's said during a therapy session. So we have to have human input in that respect. So human has to go through a number of transcripts, uh, mark what is happening in each of the transcripts. And then we give those transcripts to the model and we train the model and it learns based upon what it knows about how language is produced and and the meaning and the intent behind words. And then it learns the association between what is said and what the aspect of therapy that uh, sentence relates to. And then what you can do when you've trained that model is that you can give it 400,000 transcripts and you can say, go through these and tag each sentence or each utterance that was made by the therapist according to what is happening in that in that session and then you end up with obviously a a large data set which gives you the the quantity of each different element of therapy that happened across all the sessions that we've delivered see your neural network as you said this this piece of software it's gone through all of these transcripts and it's it's actually done this job of sort of categorizing each thing that 
the patient and the therapist have said. And then so you've, you've then got a, a, a data set, this 450,000 hours, where, where you know what, what, was, what type of thing was said in all of those, those sessions. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So, you, so you've gone from this vague understanding of there was a conversation between a therapist and a patient to actually having this measure, quantified measure of what elements occurred in that session, what elements occurred across the whole treatment duration. And that obviously gives you an opportunity to say, okay, we can look at then all the cases that we've treated. We can say what happened in the cases when patients improved and what happened in the cases when patients didn't improve and begin to understand, okay, what are the things that we see uh, associated with good outcomes? This is incredible. It's like a superpower. You can sort of, you can see through walls, right? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So you can see, if you like, you can see inside the black box that was previously, you know, unseen to us. Um, We can now, see and not only just see it but have some kind of measure in which we know okay the quantity of this is important so this yeah this is this is really really exciting and i know you've you've published a paper on this haven't you michael you and some of your colleagues yeah that's right yeah so we so we published a paper that came out um in 2019 it was and that was looking at the association between the content of the therapy session and the clinical outcomes for the patients and that was just looking for associations between different aspects of therapy and how much improvement you saw in the uh, clinical outcomes. And these, what we found was that things that we um, believe theoretically to be important in CBT, so this is a kind of change methods that involve cognitive reappraisal, behavioral reattribution, that kind of thing, these things appear to be very important. There were also other things that related to the structure of the session. So it seemed to be important that the therapist sets an agenda for the session, that they provide feedback throughout the session, the illicit feedback from the patient, and that they set homework, that kind of thing. And there are also other elements of the session that were negatively associated with outcomes. So this means the more of them, the more of these uh, aspects you find, the less likely it is that a patient recovers. Uh, and one of those things was was a category we called other. And other would be any conversation in the session that doesn't relate to therapy or the structure of therapy in some way. So you could liken it to chit-chat, any, any kind of general conversation. So the more of that that we see in a session, the less likely it is that a patient recovers, which suggests, well, it says one important thing is that is it's not just simply having a chat with a friendly therapist that helps somebody to improve. It seems that you have to actually deliver the therapy and, and the patient has to participate in, the, in the, the therapy and practice the skills and the strategies to get better. So it's not just simply, you know, the tea and sympathy that, that works in terms of the therapy. Because obviously in, the, in the, the clinical trials that Anna talked about, you're often comparing therapy against uh, nothing, if you like. So waiting, a waiting list would be a control where you're not getting therapy. So it's very difficult to have a, uh, a control condition where you're doing everything except deliver therapy. So it's kind of you're comparing chatting with a human against doing nothing. 
and our data would suggest that it's not just simply it's not just simply a conversation with a human that that, that helps. It's actually some specific components to that. It's actually something that's specific to, and that's underpinned by the the models that we know about cognition and, and behavior in, in CBT. Can I just comment? This is important. Speaking as a therapist, that uh, I you know I've I've heard in different classes of mine that it's the rapport. That's kind of the core. It's the relationship of what makes people better. And certainly you need a, a solid, trusting rela- relationship. The patient needs to believe the therapist is credible uh, and understands and kind of buys into what they're, they're speaking about, that it's logical. But, it's, but that needs to be the foundation. But then there are really important things you need to do with that, important interventions you need to do, that it's not just you kind of haven't been successful if you have a good relationship with your patient. You know, yes, that might keep your patient coming back to you for, for years on end, but are their symptoms really improving in that measurable way? Yeah, that can feel like progress. I, I guess if, you, if you're not, as, as you said earlier, earlier on, if you're not making these sort of objective measure, measures of improvement, you can sort of feel like you're making progress maybe because you have a good relationship, but maybe it's not actually, as Michael says, doing it. Right. Or you're being maintained from session to session that, that you feel good during that session. And it's a it's a, a p- part of your life that's important and, and pleasurable. And maybe you feel anxiety relief or have increased mood during that session. But in your regular kind of non-session life, are is your life improving? Right. Are, is your sleep better? Is your appetite better? Is your energy better? Is your concentration better? Do you have decreased anxiety? Um, so it's a matter of do we want more permanent change or do we want kind of a Band-Aid from from week to week and saying kind of the primary thing is that rapport rather than, you know, what what uh, Michael's speaking about, what they've discovered is just kind of phenomenal, frankly, um, to, to really be able to connect the outcomes and say the high correlations between the change mechanisms, for example, um, and not necessarily the chit chat. Yeah. So that, so as Jen was saying about uh, the analogy she used with um, treatment for diabetes for example you might be prescribed a drug and we would know we would know what the active ingredients of that drug were and when jen talked about the active mechanisms of cbt if you like because it's previously been so opaque to us we don't really know what what's happening so it's you're delivering a, a drug to each uh, patient and each drug is different and you don't know what the ingredients of each drug is and then at the end of that you're trying to say does psychotherapy work well, in order to know if it works, you have to measure what you're delivering. And this is kind of a first step to, to us knowing what the active ingredients were that were delivered to the patient in each of these sessions. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that metaphor from, from Jennifer as well, that idea that you actually you've got an active ingredient in a, in a, in a pharmaceutical drug and you, you know how much of it is being delivered. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. So, um, Michael, you were talking... Um, you were talking about your findings a bit there. So um, we discovered that actually the these bits that come from the CBT protocols, uh, we discovered they were important, which is wonderful. I'm, I'm sure um, I'm sure that's very gratifying for the people who came up with the protocols as well. But um, is was was there anything else you found out? So we found out a few other surprising things, and what one of them, and these may be related to the the way we analyze the data and that we're just looking at associations between things. Uh, so for example, we, we measured the empathy that was expressed by the, the 
therapist during the session so the empathy or the sympathy if you like which is just where they might say oh that's that's that sounds awful and feel really sorry for you that kind of thing um and that the more empathy was expressed the less likely it was the patient was going to improve that does seem counterintuitive it does seem counterintuitive so one interpretation could be that it's simply patients who have more problems and more difficulties are going to express more problems in therapy and they're going to elicit more empathy. Um, So there's not a causal relationship there. It could be that actually a certain degree of empathy is good, but perhaps if if the therapist spends too much of the session empathizing, sympathizing with the patient rather than actually engaging in some change methods, some skills, some strategies that it actually isn't beneficial for the patient. And it actually, they should be doing more CBT and less of the sympathizing. So we can't differentiate those at the moment, but that's kind of, but also um, I think it exemplifies that you can't just simply take the relationship between two things as proof of, you know, that there's a causal, a causal relationship there. So we need to dig down further into these things to, to understand what's again what's important so empathy may be useful for some some things it may not be useful for for other problems and um throughout this this conversation we've been talking i know i know obviously your findings relate to cbt but do you think these um this methodology or these findings could be sort of applied to other talking therapies yeah i mean it should it's the case if you can get that kind of data from any other psychotherapeutic intervention you should be able to parse it in the way that we did and look at what happens in the sessions when patients get better and patients don't and in fact the evidence seems to suggest that most psychotherapies have kind of equivalent outcomes doesn't seem to be one that's clearly superior to another so it's it's all about really working out what works for which for which patients I think that's a really important point, though. I think about theoretical orientations like a generic versus a brand name medication, for example. Um, They have slightly different kind of labels. They might have a different order, but the the core ingredients are quite similar. They might kind of tweak tweak some, some of the ingredients, but in the end, you're kind of feeding in content, speaking about the person's experience or symptoms or um, what have you might be particular orders of things, but regardless, the, the, the core of it is very similar. So I, I think it's important to say out loud, it's, I, I would imagine it's very much applicable. You're looking at kind of what's going on and then how it correlates with how things are getting better. There's not something that makes it unique to CBT rather. Um, and you know, frankly, any theoretical orientation, we need to better understand what works because more patients need to get better. That 50% is just not okay. Yeah. And even within CBT, you have different approaches mm-hmm. for, oh, absolutely. The, for depression. So you may, you may have a, mm-hmm. a, a certain approaches emphasize more on behavioral change before the cognitive change, for example. Um, and we, in the future, what we're currently working on now is ways to differentiate those things. So to actually specifically say which, diff, which specific change methods are more effective for, the, for uh, depression, for example. Soon we'll be able to maybe come up with a more effective treatment for for depression. Then, yeah, absolutely. So that's that's the aim is to work out what works and kind of be driven by the data, if you like, and that will inform the treatment that you deliver to patients in the future. Has anybody else ever done anything like that before? 
Well, it's just simply not been possible to do that. I mean, if you if you look at the the clinical trials in the past, and they'll usually be small numbers of of patients, you're just simply comparing outcomes between two groups. But it's very very difficult to actually uh, compare what happens in the sessions. You can do certain sessions where you might have a particular uh, module that's included or not included. But again, that that's a very subtle change to what's happening. So it's not really been possible because one, the quantity of data that people have and, and two, the, the level of detail that they have. So we really are in a, a unique position in terms of the kind of data that we have and the quantity we have. So Michael's from the north of England, but like what he's saying is this is truly game-changing, groundbreaking stuff. Is that... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, I mean, if you work in academia, as I used to work in academia, you'd be, you'd be very lucky to get to run a study with more than 30 or 40 people in, in a year. And I so have, obviously, we, I don't know how many patients we see in a day, but it would be, we see thousands in a, in a month. So that's incredible and an incredible scale as well. Um, Anna, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what have we been doing with with Michael's research? What have we been using it for? Absolutely. So as Michael was saying, this is absolutely game-changing in terms of opening a window into the black box of what is happening in therapy, not just for CBT, but possibly for for all um, therapy types. But it's only as good as... uh, what use you can make out of it. And one of the long-term objectives that Michael was um, was alluding to earlier is that you can use this knowledge to create new protocols uh, for patients, which are personalized to patients and to the problem that they are bringing to therapy, such that you can deliver the best possible therapy for patients, which is data-driven, not just theoretically driven. What we have done in a more sort of short-term basis is that we have used this knowledge to inform our clinical supervision process. So with this knowledge of what happens in a session, we can feed that information back to supervisors and to clinicians themselves to help them identify the things that are going well in sessions and the things that are going perhaps less well that need a bit more attention from both the therapists and the supervisors. So I'll give you an example. Um, So setting an agenda, for example, uh, in the session is something that we identified as an important component uh, of a therapy session. Using uh, the knowledge that we have and the models that we have that tag each individual session, we can say for each session if setting an agenda happened or not. And so when a supervisor is interacting with a particular clinician or a group of clinicians, they'll be able to know whether uh, setting an agenda is uh, a weak point, perhaps, for some of those clinicians, something that they may not even be aware of. And some targeted training processes can be put in place so that we improve the quality of the therapy that is being delivered in very key areas where that quality needs to be improved. So it's it's more than giving therapists more generic training on how to deliver therapy, but we are giving them precise, personalized training on the specific aspects that they need to improve. And I think Jennifer will cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's something that 
our clinicians really appreciate to have that knowledge, that view into their work, into how they are doing in specific areas where they can improve. And we offer that training too. So we, we try to deliver the whole package and really improve the way therapy is delivered. Absolutely. Just for clinician satisfaction, imagine having a job that you, I don't know, you make widgets and half your widgets don't turn out the way you hoped. I think that that's huge for for satisfaction. And and with providing that personalized information, um, if you think of any mental health diagnosis, there are usually dozens of different combinations that add up to one mental health diagnosis. So for any individual patient, they could have a particular kind of priority of symptoms that are troubling them. For example, if sleep is our biggest challenge with depression, for example, and you go in and you start speaking about um, their thoughts, yet they can't sleep, they're exhausted, how do we expect um, patients to progress as as hope for or as expectors as they could reach their potential? So thinking about those personalized treatments based on the individual symptoms that the patients are presenting with. And it, it guides the therapist. It's kind of like a, a lane guidance system or a GPS for a therapist. It provides them with additional information about what, what particular techniques are effective and then also which af- techniques are effective for particular patient populations and not just those overall diagnostic categories or you know, anxiety, depression, trauma, things like that. Wow. That's certainly an exciting, exciting view of the future. Um, Anna, I wonder if I could just talk to you a bit more about the supervision piece so the you, you mentioned that um, you were able to sort of spot a specific weakness in some therapists that they weren't setting an agenda. By that, I mean uh, I assume you mean at the start of the session saying this is what we're going to be covering this week and going through it with their patient. Is that is that that's right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. So that so you spot this specific weakness in a group of therapists and you you set them some specific training around doing that. And then your supervisors are able to, I guess, go back and check and see if the sessions, all of the sessions that these these therapists are delivering have have changed, if the makeup of them has changed. Is, is this what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And uh, particularly around that example of agenda setting, that's something that we have actually done. Uh, we have identified clinicians who had um, uh, maybe some... some uh, skills that needed polishing around agenda setting, and we gave them some personalized training around this particular skill, and we monitored in their sessions how uh, their agenda setting was before and after the training. And what we see is that there was a, a, a sustained um, a sustained increase in agenda setting for up to six months following training, which is quite quite remarkable. That's a win for everybody, right? It's a win win for the patients. They're getting better care. It's a win for the therapists and they get because they're getting this, as you say, personalized training program that really addresses their maybe their shortcomings in their skill set. I wonder if it could this also be used to combat something you were talking about earlier on, therapist drift, where where people gradually sort of move away from the protocol they're delivering. Yes, absolutely. I think that identifying what happens in a session can not only identify therapist drift, but also something like therapist rigidity. So therapists, um, as they become more experienced, sometimes, um, you know, it's only natural as humans that we developed our own way of doing things. And sometimes we develop our own preconceptions of what works and what doesn't. 
and we don't have access to all the evidence. Uh, you know, we don't have access to 450,000 hours of therapy to to have the data behind that to support it. So it is not unusual that therapists develop their own way of doing things. And by knowing what happens in a session, we are able to see, okay, this therapist seems to be doing the same thing for every single patient that is coming through, which is obviously not going to be beneficial for every patient. There needs to be a degree of adaptation. Um, so, you know, having this knowledge is absolutely crucial to identifying therapist drift and to, to helping therapists who have fallen into this very natural trap, I should say. And, you know, of not course, just yeah. therapists, we all do it yeah. in our jobs. But yeah. So it goes back to what I was saying before about being data driven and that the, these are the things that the data says works as a therapist, like any any human, we have we have biases and you know availability bias. You you remember something that you did with a patient and it works and that stands out and so oh, yeah that was I must do that it always works thing. This is this is and then you develop your own particular you know idiosyncrasies about how you deliver therapy. Um, when you're using the data, in this case it's evidence based. You've got evidence. Okay, these were the things that did work. Um, and again, it's it's a thing that we're not often we're not always aware of what we do and what works. We have particular biases and particular ideas about what should and shouldn't work. Uh, and in the sense, the data is the best thing, the nearest thing we get to an objective measure of what does work. Yeah, I guess it, even Einstein had his sort of his ideas that he wasn't willing to let go of. Right, like that's very 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 human. And um, Jennifer, how does how does supervision work without this tool? Like obviously we we've heard that it's a unique tool that no mm-hmm. it's not never been possible before. This is the first time it's ever been done. What what have we been doing up till now? Sure, and and what I what I do in my uh, other academic life, uh, I I've been supervising people for um, eighteen years now in clinical settings, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, a couple other mental health disciplines, and uh, oftentimes particularly when they're in the beginning of their training, I will sit in the session with them, kind of observe what's happening, maybe spend a couple sessions with them, and then I'll pull out. And then a couple sessions later, um, while the therapist is carrying on independently, I'll hear that the patient dropped out or they have um, an increase in symptoms. And all the only data points I have are the therapist's report. I have the therapist's report. I have the patient's report, if I ask the patient. And I also have the notes. And so all of those are very biased sources of information versus actually word for word what occurred in the session. And it's not, um, it's not negative toward the therapist, for example. You, re- you remember things in particular ways where you, know, you have interpretations and biases, exactly like Michael was speaking about. So this is game-changing. There, and there are subtle things that occur in therapy that um, a therapist wouldn't necessarily notice. But uh, when you have that data and, and you compare what occurs to thousands of other patients, if that occurs, then you can um, appreciate what the data highlights, that, that that's a more salient point that, that, that a human can recognize. Uh, so it's, it's super exciting. And it's, um, I, I mean, I, I hate to be a, uh, cheesy, as Americans would say, but I think it's game changing. I, I really do, and it's just so exciting when I heard that you could actually understand what's happening in care versus uh, reports of what occurs in care. It was beyond any expectation I have, and we and we know this. I should say, you know, with the recovery rates, I think around sixty seven percent versus fifty percent. And that, I mean, just that core piece of data there tells me 
um, that, that we're better able to understand what's working and, and speak with the therapists and they can improve their care. It's not, it's not magic. It's people providing better care. But you can't provide that better care unless you do something different. I mean, that's a very, very inspirational note to sort of <laughs> wrap up the discussion on. I do, I do just want to ask you guys um, about our sort of the, the question we started with was, does psychotherapy work? And I think we, we sort of have come to the conclusion that like, you know, 50 percent of the time it works every time. And we, we've seen how we can maybe improve that, as you say, Jennifer, getting 67 percent. Um, of the people who they see better it's great it's two-thirds it's better than half but then what do we reckon the ceiling is on on recovery rates for for mental health conditions how how high could this go i'll ask you all jennifer what do you think (laughs) these are personality tests right our levels of optimism you should i think we can dramatically improve recovery rates i think it needs to end up earlier on um, pre-diagnosis when people have subclinical symptoms we need to address those when people are in the midst of treatment, if we can get that right treatment at the right time to the right patient, um, I, I think that I think the sky's the limit. I, I'll be honest, because we we're so far from that right now, and just with very very small changes, we've seen these dramatic improvements in recovery rates. So, I think the sky's the limit. I don't want to give a number, but I think the the sky's the limit as we keep advancing. God, I was hoping for some optimism from the American <laughs> Marco. Go on. I would say um, there's huge room for improvement. And one aspect is just getting patients to engage with therapy. Mm-hmm. So preventing the dropout is a huge mm-hmm. element, which is half half the battle. Um, and I think it's a case of then beginning to understand what works for whom and where you should direct people. And for some people, it might be therapy. And for some people, it, it might be medication. Um, for some people, it might be both. But there's a huge, there's a there's a long way to go. But I think there's a long way before we worry about coming up against the limits of, of uh, who we can get better. I think. So there's 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 some some room for improvement. Should we call yeah. it Eubanks Law? Recovery rate doubles every uh, <laughs> doubles every eighteen months. Well, that would be nice to see. Uh, <laughs> Anna, what do you, what do you think? Well. I'll give you some optimism if you are after optimism. I think that if if we aim for anything under than a hundred percent, that that is uh, unacceptable. Um, given the the burden of mental illness um, affecting the world right now and how it impacts people's lives, you know, Michael was saying earlier, it is important for patients to engage. If if we can give patients something that they believe works, then patients will engage more. And you know, an analogy that I like to make is how how the world uh, how the world was treating cancer a few decades ago, maybe at the start of the twentieth century. You know, we've made huge improvements, huge improvements in terms of personalizing care and optimizing treatment outcomes for patients with cancer. And I think that we can achieve the same for mental health if we know what we are giving patients, what what the dose is in therapy, what the active ingredients are in the same way that we know when we are delivering medicines, then I think that 100% is achievable and anything under that is unacceptable. We need to we need to fix this problem. And I think that this this is possible in our lifetimes, I like to believe. That's that dose of optimism I was hoping for. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, that was a great discussion. That's all we have time for, but I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next time, we'll be talking about the recent discovery of subtypes of depression and what implications that has for care. I hope you'll join us for it. Make sure to follow Thinking Ahead wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. I've been Tom Clalford, and this has been Thinking Ahead. Thinking Ahead.